Hello again, everyone. We are back after some time off. That totally wasn't Zhao's fault. It was my fault, completely my fault. And we're up to episode 77. How you doing, Zhao? Oh, good. Long time no see, long time no talk about the security here in the podcast. It's good to be back. And we have some catching up to do. We missed quite some stories over this past few weeks. Yep. So basically, I moved studios. So actually, I think this is one of the, yeah, this is the debut of this studio on this channel because the Home Lab show is on uh, Tom's channel. It's about 70% set up. I have about half the lighting set up, but I have enough to. Uh, actually do the podcast now. And I was setting up the new studio. Long story made short, I moved. And as with all moves, it took a lot longer than I thought it would. So I was scrambling trying to get everything uh, built out over the last month and tired myself out. And now I have a mostly workable solution. So I apologize for the um, disappearance on that. It was so crazy that I couldn't even get to my computer half the time and didn't even have internet for three weeks. So it's been a lot of fun. But now everything is fine. Um, all the Comcast issues I'll leave out of the podcast have been resolved. And now I am back. So we are back and we're ready to do the podcast. And at this new studio, we're going to have a, a far fewer reasons why, at least on my end, that anything will stop the podcast, barring any crazy weather or power <laughs> outages on your side, because you were saying that could happen. But we're going to go for it. Yeah, you know how Murphy is. He's a bastard. So let's see if he doesn't <laughs> play us any tricks. Um, yep. Yeah, so we missed a few stories over the past few weeks. Uh, for the ones that have been with us the longest, you might remember that on the last episode, we discussed a really nasty vulnerability around WebP. And right at the end of that episode, I briefly mentioned the new vulnerability that had also come out just a day or so before that episode. And it was called Looney Tunables. And we will get into these stupid, stupid names in a bit. Um, but going into the actual vulnerability, because it's quite dangerous and it's quite pervasive. Um, so this is a vulnerability around glibc. glibc is a basic library that most systems use. And by most systems, I mean most distributions use. Um, that gives you the basic functionalities for input-output, for memory management. The basic stuff that your system does is usually coded inside of glibc. Um, it affects the latest Fedoras, for the latest Ubuntu's, the latest related distributions. Um, every single article out there makes a point of mentioning that it doesn't that it doesn't affect Alpine because Alpine does not use glibc; it uses MUSL muzzle. Um, and for some reason, every single uh, article that's out there around this vulnerability makes uh, a specific mention of that, so we'll mention it as well. Um, but the, the way that this works is that it, the tunables that are used in this case is the glibc tun underscore tunables environment variable. An environment variable is a value that you define that's maintained throughout the lifetime of a process. In the, the, in the case of a session, when you log into a session, you can define variables at the system and at the user level, and those are maintained throughout your session, or they can be set on a process-by-process -process basis. Um, the vulnerability itself stems from the way that glibc looks for the .glibc underscore tunables environment variable. 
It's a variable that can control several internal workings of glibc so that you don't require a new version of glibc just because you want a slightly different behavior of some of the functions. So you can set the value inside of that environment variable and it will affect whatever you're trying to use glibc for. The tricky part here is that it's possible to, cr to craft the value of that specific variable in such a way that you can trick glibc into assigning memory and overwriting other memory locations that can be controlled by the attacker. At the time that we initially briefly mentioned this on the last episode, there was still no publicly available exploit code. At least I seem to recall that. This has changed and it changed like a day or two after we reported on it. So there are now quite a few examples of code out there on GitHub and other places that are basically just ready to use. It takes a couple of minutes to get the right combinations of memory locations. It will look for those specific memory locations so that it overwrites the specific portions of code that it wants. And then it basically gives you root. So using this, yeah. an unprivileged user can escalate to root and get full system access, which as we all know is game over for a Linux system. Oh yeah, that's the worst you could get. So there, there are patches now, have been out for quite a while now, um, for a few weeks at least. For most Linux distributions, you should get the updates for glibc if you still haven't. Um, this is very widely used. This is very, the number of vulnerable systems is very large and um, there are exploits out there that can turn this into a remote execution exploit, so they don't even require local access. Um, it gets nasty really quickly. Um, yep. The reason that I wanted to discuss this vulnerability again, other than it being really dangerous, is the silly name. I mean, come on. We've been seeing this over yeah. and over, and it's just getting to a point that it's just ridiculous. It is, and it also can. I mean, obviously, this needs some spotlight because it gives root, and a lot of but a lot of vulnerabilities need spotlight. And, I, and I, as we've <coughs> kind of touched on, you get you give something a name, and it's going to get all the focus, whether it needs all the focus or not. But other valid vulnerabilities, you know, the the tens of thousands of others that are probably being looked at at any given time. I'm just making up numbers, but a lot. Um, then they may not get as much attention. But then it's like you you spend a, they spend a lot of time finding the vulnerability. Then a lot of time, or maybe no time, depending on if they are into dad jokes or not, coming up with a really weird name for it. And that's the thing, right? If from the top of the of your head, somebody asked you to name the most important vulnerabilities of the past three or four years, or even five, you're going to come up with Heartbleed, you're going to come up with Looney Tunables, you're going to come up with Dirty Pipes, all the ones that got those weird names. And by no means were those the only dangerous vulnerabilities during this right. period. <laughs> They're not even the only dangerous vulnerabilities since a month ago when Looney Tunables was, uh, was announced. But the way that these silly names draw up media attention and draw up everybody's mindset around them and makes every team, every IT team out there just focuses on dealing with these specific ones because these are the ones that you're going to get questions from CEOs and CIOs and all of that. Have we handled that vulnerability, the one that's in the news? Have we handled the one that's being mentioned on CNN? Are we still vulnerable to this? It takes resources away from basically everything else. So if you're just focusing on this one, how many are falling under the radar? How many are not being handled as, as they should? 
Right. And yeah, it's really, really easy to be lost in just the, the funny names and don't look at, at other important stuff that's, that's going around at the same time. So much so that most, okay, I'm going to pull this number, this number out of thin air, but most exploits out there, most attacks out there, they don't care about the, the silly names. An attacker just wants to pass into a system. They're not really concerned if it's named funny or not. The only people yep. that are interested in the names are the people that are interested in padding a resume. Oh, I was the one that discovered this one that you probably heard about in the news. I was the one that got information for this one. Yeah, I'm very famous. And yeah. that's and essentially as, SEO just, as well. And that's essentially just bragging rights, nothing else. That's not really more interesting than any other vulnerability. So yep. yeah, if if you one day you're in a position where you find a new vulnerability and it's not this isn't rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. If you're ever in that position, please think twice about it. You really don't need to name vulnerabilities. It's just silly. Yep. It makes it look funnier than it is. It shouldn't be. There are no vulnerabilities that are more important than others. It really makes no sense. So, Well, there is yeah. one that was considered the most important vulnerability <laughs> and ended up actually not being all that important. So maybe that's actually a good segue into the whole curl thing. Yeah, it actually is. And this one doesn't get a name. So yep. again, on the previous episode, and this feels like a new uh, new show, a new TV show. Um, on the previous episode, we also talked about the vulnerability on curl. You know, I'm personally a fan of the way that the, the curl project is transparent about how they handle vulnerabilities and how they manage the information disclosure around vulnerabilities. And about two months ago, give or take, there was a vulnerability that we talked about here. Uh, which had been submitted to the CV registries and it targeted curl and uh, it was really bad and the description was like the end of the world was coming and it got slapped with a 9.8 score. It turns out after analysis by the, the team behind curl that it wasn't even a security issue. It had to do with timeouts and retries and it could be tricked into rolling over a, a value into a very large value so that your retry wouldn't take the number of seconds that you were expecting, but would take like uh, millions of years instead. Um, and after looking at that, the, the curl project didn't even consider it a security issue. They fixed the problem, but again, it should never have had the score that it did. Right. So also about three weeks ago or something, there was this announcement around curl that they would be disclosing the most important vulnerability in recent curl history. This was a obviously a pun on the other one and made everybody think twice. I mean, if the, the people creating curl themselves are saying that it's bad, it must really be very, very bad. Um, so the date came and went and it wasn't really that bad, or at least it wasn't as widely, it didn't affect so many people as it was initially expected. What it was, was a vulnerability around the way that curl handled SOX 4A and SOX 5H protocols. Uh, SOX is a type of proxy. The A and the H just means that, uh, look, that uh, name resolution happens at the other end of the proxy or locally on your machine. So your traffic gets 
gets rerouted through the proxy, but the, the DNS resolutions will happen either at the other side, as you would expect, or locally. And it turns out that it was possible to trick uh, curl into resolving locally when you were expecting it to resolve the names on the other end. So why was this important? Stuff like Tor, for example. At some level, it uses these protocols. And if you're concerned enough about somebody who's dropping in your communications, that you consider one of these protocols specifically for the, the, the anonymity that you're looking for, it's a really bad situation when you're leaking the, the DNS resolutions locally. Um, an attacker might not be able to see exactly what traffic you're doing, but if they see uh, the New York Times website, for example, then you're likely accessing the, the New York Times website. If they're seeing that there's a the, the URL for a mirror for one Linux one specific Linux distribution, it's very likely that one of your of your systems is running that particular Linux distribution. Um, there's a lot of information that can be gleaned just by looking at the DNS resolutions that you're doing, and mm -hmm. when the network is insecure, when you're in an environment where you're under threat or you're trying to just get anonymized traffic out there. This can be a really tricky situation if your client is able to leak information like that. Yep, absolutely. Time to hydrate. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so it was it was an important vulnerability. They disclosed it. Um, there are already patches out there for most distributions for the version of curl that's present in most distributions. Not all of them were affected, but the the bad code had been there in curl for a few for some months now, probably two years now. Um, it wasn't even the the longest or the oldest bug that they had fixed in the, in the past couple of years, but it was. I don't know. At this point, I'm not sure if they called it the most important vulnerability in recent times, just because of the other one, or if they actually considered it to be that level of importance. Um, but it got a lot of people concerned. And people are concerned each time curl is mentioned in a vulnerability because right. you have curl in every single piece of software that you're using that deals with communications, even if they don't announce it. Your web browser is using it. Your phone is using it. I mean, your IoT devices have curl in there. If not the curl executable, then they use libcurl because nobody wants to rewrite the rule, uh, the, to reinvent the wheel. And curl just gives you all the protocol handling that you need for communication. So why not abuse it when you have it? So yeah, you're using curl whether you know it or not. And it's present everywhere. It's present in countless YouTube videos and the tutorials where I used it for this or that. So it, it's definitely something I, I feel like no Linux user can possibly escape um, for more than a couple of days. It's definitely going to come up. So it's huge. And another story that's making the, the news and people are creating webinars about this. Uh, shameless plug, I will be doing a webinar on under TechScare brand on early in early December around this topic of CentOS 7. Um, end of that shameless plug there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, CentOS 7 is widely used. Uh, people are still using CentOS 7, even though CentOS 8 has been end of life for a couple of years now. It all started with that Red Hat debacle. No, not that one, the one previous. So when... <laughs> <laughs> When Alma Linux and Rocky and all of those came to the scene, it was because CentOS 8 was end of life much sooner than expected. 
And strangely enough, CentOS 7 lasted longer than CentOS 8. It turns we out. We joked so, around about that a lot because yeah. we, we, procrastinators finally had a, a situation where they came out on top. Yeah. If you weren't quick enough to upgrade, you were actually <laughs> the lucky one. Um, so it doesn't last forever. And CentOS 7 is hitting end of life in June of next year. Um, if you are only running a couple of systems on CentOS 7, that might seem like very far away. If you have a large enough fleet, then you're likely already out of time. Um, mm -hmm. It takes a long time to plan, to test, and to execute an upgrade, especially on large fleets. Depending on the workload that each system is doing, you might be looking at many, many steps in the upgrade process. And you should really be thinking twice if you have CentOS 7 running in your environment on the best pass forward. Um, if you happen to need more time, again, shameless plug, um, we at Taxcare, we are going to offer an extended lifecycle support service for this. So you can still get security updates, which is the biggest problem after a, a system hits end of life. You stop receiving security updates and you're basically a bug magnet at that point. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah, CentOS 7, it's still very large in the enterprise. Lots of companies are still using it. The, the quick turnaround of CentOS 8, when it went from supported for nine years to supported to just until the end of that year, made a lot of people delay the upgrade from 7 to 8. Like, we, like I mentioned before, those were the lucky ones, and the ones that weren't hit by the CentOS 8 end of life. Uh, but at some point, that luck runs out and you're going to have to move somewhere else or you're going to, going to have to look for support from somewhere else. And right about now, you really should start thinking if you're not already out of time. Again, a migration yeah. takes a really long time. Yeah, for some people, like you mentioned, it might not seem like a big deal. But if it doesn't seem like a big deal, to your point, you probably don't have thousands of systems to upgrade. But as soon as you do, then uh, maybe that extended lifecycle support will come in very handy because if someone hasn't started the process yet, that might be their way out of this situation. And then there's, a, for many years, there was this policy around CentOS where whenever you ask the question, okay, how do I upgrade the CentOS system to a, a more recent version? The official standpoint of Red Hat and the people on the CentOS project would be, you don't, there is no upgrade pass, you reinstall and you migrate the data or you migrate the workload or whatever it is. That's a really bad proposition if you have a thousand servers, two thousand servers, 10,000 servers, you don't want to do that. Um, exactly. It's yeah, like a a best case to, the best case scenario, you might be able to, you know, set up an image that you could then deploy, but you're still deploying a new image with all the settings and everything baked in, but you still have a lot of work because, you know, every server has a different use case, different applications, different settings and things you need to make sure migrate over. And that could be a very big job for some people listening to this podcast. I mean, if your environment is large enough that it warrants automation to be able to be managed and deployed and renewed and updated and all of that, if you require automation to be able to go through each of the systems that you have, then there's no way that you can go manually and troubleshoot the upgrade process on each system. So you're basically looking at reinstalling the whole fleet. 
I'm sure people don't go out and immediately, oh, I'm starting my business. I'm going to start with 10,000 servers and I'm going to deploy them. And I have a script for all of that and it's going to be great. And I'm using Ansible and Terraform and all of those great tools out there. And here you go, 10,000 new servers, all shiny and all ready to go. When you already have a workload, when you already have deployed applications, when you have data, you can no longer act that way. So you need to be conscious of what you're doing so that you don't lose any data, so that your applications continue to run, so that you don't run into any weird compatibility issues that only come up in production and you are not able to catch during testing. And those are the ones that are going to take away your sleep time because you're going to be fixing systems when you should be doing something else. And if you think that you're overworked now, try thinking again when you're halfway through a migration like this. And yeah, good luck. I think that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves in the industry that I've that I experience. You know, to your point, when everything works in testing and then it fails in production, and you're thinking, "Why? I, I tested this like a bunch of times." And um, there's so many things that are hard to map because you know, user testing, like load testing, for example. Simulated users are, are a great way to know how much a server can withstand, but they're still not regular users. Regular users always find really amazing ways to break things, and a simulation will never capture that. But you know, sometimes that's the closest we can get, or there's some kind of weird edge case or something like that. It happens, and I've I've seen it, and it's it's always it's the very reason why there's a backout plan anytime there's a migration or some kind of maintenance for that very reason, because it might be used. <laughs> but here's the thing. If halfway through a migration of 10,000 servers, you find out that something is wrong, you're actually stuck right there because you can't really roll back all the systems again because <laughs> you might face issues again. Um, yeah, it's a really bad position to be in. And to your point, it's not just simulating the load. I mean, you can get the right number of connections. You might even get the right scripts to simulate users there, but there's peaks of usage throughout the day. There's specific patterns that users will do that you're really hard pressed to, to figure out. I mean, they might find a better way to, to go through a shopping cart checkout process, for example, that you haven't found during your testing and your usability testing. Um, you might not be testing the exactly the right things that the user that the users turn out to be doing on your website. And when I'm talking about websites, it doesn't have to be websites. There are other types of server, client server um, applications out there. You might be running, uh, I don't know, your own Discord server, your own email server, your own file servers. All of those are really hard to to, to test against usage. There's no way you can replicate real-world usage on that scenario. First, because you don't have a lab environment that's exactly the same number of servers as you have in production. You don't have the right number of connections to those servers in the in your testing environment. And regardless of what people tell you, testing in a lab environment will usually go out, go really nicely. Those servers have never been used before. They're basically stock configurations. You just deployed the, the, the basic stuff there exactly as you need it. But they don't have the years of tweaks that you've done to the other systems. They don't have the specific updates and upgrade paths that you used on each of the other systems. And at some point, those differences add up. So you end up with systems that look at face value like the other ones, but those small differences will add up over time 
and you'll end up in situations where there's just not a, enough amount of testing that you can do to, to prepare you for a migration. Yeah, and, again, I, and also I would say anybody who has a you know an employee that they work with that runs really huge reports off the server, try to get them to test your test server, run that same report because I've seen weird situations where everything goes well and then on Monday everything falls over because one person runs a, re runs a report and on the new version of the software it triggers something and comes crashing down and there's all these weird things and some of the reports and this was um, obviously this was like a confluence or jira type thing so i mean that in and of itself is a could be a problem but yeah definitely try to get some buy in on the testing from people around your building that do something unique because you might need them to see if their report runs if it doesn't or whatever it is they're doing you'll find out and you'll probably uh, have some extra work to do it's it, there's always something it's just like murphy's law to your point from a comment you made earlier yeah. um to, to your point about jira and confluence atlassian had problems and had oh, yeah. two very nasty bugs over the past couple of weeks so yeah you might get updates for that as well um, oh yeah <laughs> you probably already are getting updates for that i used to work with the, those uh softwares quite often in an earlier yeah. life um it's interesting that you mentioned the buy-in. One of the things that you learn when you're planning this stuff and when you're running lab environments about this stuff is that the buy-in is particularly important. And it's particularly important because getting someone, a, a contact on each of the teams, on your internal teams, accounting, HR, the management, anybody that has some specific systems that they handle, that has applications that were deployed specifically for that, um, for that department, you should have a contact in each of them. And that person should have the responsibility of running their tests on your lab environment. Whenever you make a change, ring them up. Hey, I need you to rerun the test suite on the, on the lab environment to make sure everything is working fine. Because mm -hmm. there's no amount of documentation that those departments can give you that will ever reflect their experience and their specific use cases. They might tell you, oh, you need to click here and this button and this button, this creates a report. There are two things that can go wrong there. First, it can go wrong that you get the report. So you might not notice any issues that the, that the report is missing. For example, it doesn't have the proper invoice number or it doesn't have the proper stuff in the line descriptions. And mm -hmm. those persons would notice that at, uh, at first notice, as soon as they open the report would notice. And you, because you don't have the, the domain knowledge, you wouldn't catch those mistakes. And the second thing that can go wrong is that it doesn't do all the steps that it should do. Sure, it creates the report, it creates the invoice, all of that, but it doesn't update the other database that has the, the accounting for the whole company, and it should have done that. And those are the types of things that only domain-specific people will know, and only the people that actually use those applications and those websites on a day-to-day -day basis can actually tell you and confirm that it's actually working or not. So this is one of the things that you will learn when you're doing migrations like this, is that you really, really need buy-in from the different departments and you need specific contacts that you can ring up on your organization that will help you through this. You don't have to do this alone. That's exactly right. Yeah, I wish, I, yeah, definitely. I feel like that's an extremely important piece of advice. I've seen that often where that doesn't happen and then what happens after is not something you want to be woken up at, you know, three in the morning on a weekend to deal with, trust me. To make matters even more interesting to the people running CentOS, and it seems that like I'm bashing on CentOS, but I'm not. Um, 
CentOS 8, or sorry, CentOS Stream 8, the, the direct replacement for CentOS 8 that got killed early, is also hitting end of life. And it's hitting end of life at the end of May. And like CentOS 7, where there is some semblance of some migration paths that you can do, for CentOS Stream 8, all the information that's out there that you can Google right now about how to upgrade to a most recent version will have a certain amount of steps that you should do. It's an incredibly large amount of steps. And the troubleshooting section of those guides is 10 times as long as the number of steps you need to do for the deployment. There are so many things that can go wrong from a CentOS 3 mate migration to a 9 that if you have to do that for more than a couple of systems, it's just untenable. You're better off just reinstalling the system and going through the other path. Um, for some reason, it's much, much harder to migrate away from CentOS 3 Mate than from CentOS 7. And I was really baffled by that. Yeah. It, it's like it's a it's a streaming release that doesn't stream in this particular circumstance, but it does if it's eight upgrading packages on eight, but not eight to nine. And then it's not confusing at all that CentOS 8 is end of life, but CentOS Stream 8 is not, but soon will be. It's really funny, isn't it? The, 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 like you said, yeah. the rolling release, a distribution that is of that type, that's a rolling release type, shouldn't have these hard stops. You should always be able to roll over into the next one. That's exactly in the name. That's exactly right. what it's supposed to do. But apparently, CentOS remade, it's like end of the line. Uh, so it's not just end of line of life, it's end of line. There's no line away from CentOS remade, which is amazing in my view <laughs> and yeah you when centos 8 was killed the the official information okay but that's not a problem because you can just swap the repositories on your centos 8 systems and you'll start getting the the upgrades from centos uh, from centos stream and it's everything going to be rosy and everything is going to be work just fine well no it doesn't no it isn't for many years, the official position of the CentOS upgrade pass was that there was none. And for CentOS Stream, the official upgrade information is that there is none. So yeah, you're basically on your own if you're trying this. And just by looking at the, the troubleshooting information and the stuff that people are posting about missing and the stuff that breaks during the upgrades, it's amazing. It's broken packages on anything from databases to web servers to PHP or Python, everything breaks. And you must be prepared for a very long time of debugging just to get the system to, to reboot again. And that's really weird on not just this type of, re, of, um, of a release, but on something that's based off the stuff that eventually makes it to Red Hat and to RHEL. I mean, I don't expect that type of behavior from this level of uh, distribution. I don't think anybody does. This should be rock solid. This should be stuff that just works out of the box. And this changed the stream, even though it wasn't out at this such. It's really hitting all the wrong spots in this play, in this situation. Yeah, it is. And it's the, the whole rolling release uh, style of Linux distributions. I mean, it, it's pretty clear what that means if you've been using Linux for a long time, but it's murky a little bit because 
you know, some people might consider Debian testing a rolling release. It's not, but it kind of is in a way. And then CentOS Stream is supposed to be a rolling re release, but it's also not. But we have, you know, Arch Linux, for example, which is a rolling release and a number of others. So I, I kind of feel like we just need more granular terms on these release styles because rolling release just doesn't universally cut it when it comes to describing release methodologies, unless it is something like Arch Linux. And I know um, SUSE is coming out with one. Um, I, I forget the name. Do you remember the name? It was just in the news recently. Um, if not, we'll mention it next time. But the, the point is, it's just you, you think of rolling releases as something that just continually rolls over to the next release. But in this case, it it's not. And I wonder if some people that have already moved to stream are gonna feel like it was a bad move because their understanding was not uh, accurate. Their understanding was not accurate. And in my view, the, the description of stream wasn't accurate either at the time. I mean, we all know that Red Hat fumbled the ball on that one yet again. It seems like a recurring theme, but it really wasn't when you're hitting a situation like this. If you were claiming that this would replace CentOS would be the, uh, I mean, the de facto replacement for CentOS 8, then it should at least have an upgrade pass available because one of the changes that they had done since the times of CentOS 5 moving to CentOS 6 was that there was some semblance of work going towards making systems upgradable. Um, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't. It was better than nothing. It actually got some of some systems through the line. Not all of them, you would still have to tweak around and you would still have to fix things that broke unexpectedly, but you might be able to do it. There is no option right. like that here. The, I mean, having to tweak every single package that you deployed during the upgrade pack, during the upgrade process, having to remove manually um, packages that are left over if, when you upgrade to the new version, that interfere with the, the new version packages, that... Uh, change the libraries and you, you don't get the same you don't get the same number of deployed packages on the CentOS 8 stream that gets upgraded to 9 that you would get if you deployed the CentOS stream 9 machine there is a difference even in the number of packages that you get that's less than ideal and on right. the enterprise where this makes a difference this affects things like compliance First, you're going to be out of compliance the minute that these systems go end of life. Um, you will stop receiving security updates, and security updates are the thing that you need to meet compliance with most standards on most end industries. Um, the ones that make any mention of cybersecurity will have some clause where they stipulate that you need to deal with uh, newly emerged or newly released vulnerabilities within a certain time frame. If you never get security updates, you will never meet those compliance requirements. So you will be out of compliance as soon as it hits end of life. Um, that's a yeah. shocker. Um, and when it hits end of life, it's going to stop streaming. I'm here all day. But <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah. Um, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's my fault. <laughs> no problem. Um, but yeah, you really want to avoid being in a situation like this. Like we said before, like I mentioned before repeatedly now, um, seems like a broken record at this point. Um, the amount of time that's still available is probably not enough and you should look into other options. 
either replacing all of the systems that you have running this with something new and yours going to be starting fresh or migrating to something else or looking into an extended support offerings from some vendor. Um, but um, you really need to consider what you're going to be doing. It's not just... Sometimes, in some situations, this isn't as clear-cut as, as, as that. You're not just using older versions of the, the operating systems just because you want to use older versions of the operating system. It might have been certified. The, the, the workload that you have might be important enough that you got it certified to do a certain task. And if you move the operating system to something else, you're going to need to recertify. That takes time, that costs money, and that's a really pain in the rear end to get through. It's a whole process. It's very bureaucratic. It takes a lot of steps. And it's really not something that is very interesting to be doing. And then there's the stuff that easily breaks when you move through different versions of the operating system. Stuff like hardware support. You might have drivers that are being tested and confirmed to work on a specific version of the OS. But when you move to a new one, tough luck. Your very expensive piece of equipment no longer works. And that can be as easy as a, an automatic door opener, or that can be as expensive as a, a factory equipment or a robot or something like that that stops working simply because you upgraded the operating system. Um, these are all considerations that you need to, to go and look at if you're in that situation. I mean, in the past, I've dealt with situations where we were running really old operating systems. And I mean, Windows 8 and Windows 95 simply because the drivers we had for specific lab equipment required that we use those operating systems because the company that created the lab equipment was no longer, it didn't exist anymore. And the only drivers that were available were those. And the equipment cost over a million bucks. So yeah, we continued to run Windows 95 and 98 air-gapped just because we needed to continue to use that lab equipment at that place. Um, mm -hmm. There are situations like that where you can be forced into running end-of-life systems and end-of-life equipment, but it all comes with trade-offs. You're losing security just to be able to maintain your investment or recoup your investment. You really need to consider all of this when you're looking at an environment where you have operating systems that go end-of-life. And additionally, you want to consider alternatives that won't go end-of-life the year after, for example. If you're running CentOS 7, goes out of support next year, and you migrate to a different OS, and that new OS goes out of support the year after that, well, you just wasted a year. You might have taken some more time looking at the options and picked something that was supported for five years, 10 years, a very long period where you didn't have to worry yourself about this. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And when legacy yeah. systems fail, they always fail in a very interesting way. Like I told this story before, so I'll shorten it for those that are new. That the Windows 98 laptop, this reminded me of at a company that I used to work for a while back. And when that laptop died, it was what controlled the door opening mechanism on all the doors of the building. And literally everyone in the company couldn't enter the building as soon as that laptop died. And it was the one... Um, you know, machine that could run the door mechanism or whatever the software was and, and just rolling up to work and finding everybody that works there just huddled around the side of the building. And it's like, yeah, legacy system just died. That's the only thing that could cause something weird, weird to happen like that. But that's the thing. Yep. Nobody runs legacy systems because they like to run legacy systems. 
mm-hmm. in product. I mean, in production, some people run, for example, the gaming systems at home or in their home labs or something like that because they like those systems. But you don't run this in production just because you mm-hmm. want to run stuff that's unsupported in production. You're many times forced into this situation, and it's always a pain to to continue supporting them when the vendor no longer exists or no longer cares about those systems. Right. Um, but again, when you're in that position, you really need to consider all the, the moving parts here. So I would say for anyone in this situation, try to map out the scope. This is extremely important. Do it right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Get it started right now. Just Just get some high level details on there, what the current version is, the version you might move to. If you move to that, then how long is that supposed to be supported for? And would that be enough time? Or do you have to go a different direction? If you have to go a different direction, then um, maybe you might not want to go with that one. You might want to you know, change platforms completely. Is the workload too much to do for doing that right now? Maybe. So maybe you could plan a new way forward, but you don't have enough time to execute that now. So you might go to stream nine and rebuild your systems and then either stay with that if you like the way that's going or you know, you're okay with that or go a different direction, but you have to understand the scope, how many systems need to be updated, uh, how long it might take on average, just just get some details down at least, so that way you can start building a map because it's all too easy for that one system that everybody forgot about to get you know broken into because nobody thought to upgrade it. So just make sure you understand your scope. And if you're lucky enough to be in, a, in an environment where everything is more or less standardized, create the the upgrade scripts don't try to run that by hand <laughs> automate as much as possible and right. if you're again if you're lucky enough to be in that situation man that's going to save you a lot of time but do debug those scripts really hard on the the lab environment and be ready to do some quick remediation during the the upgrade process but that's the the best way to to approach something like this and that's our recommendation. So, yep. yeah, I believe that's our episode, unless you had any other thoughts you want no, to No, I today. guess that wraps it up for today. It was a catching up of some newsworthy material that came out while we were away. Um, let's hope that we're back next week. But yep. again, Murphy, <laughs> so <laughs> fingers crossed that he doesn't play any tricks on us again. Yeah, Thanks, everybody, who joined. Some issues again. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much, everybody. We appreciate you. Thank you for Thank your you. patience. Talk to you soon. Until the next one.